HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com, bringing you the freshest radio in Brooklyn since 2009. Hear directly from chefs to farmers, artists to architects, authors to brewers, and everyone in between. Check out all of our shows on our website or by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes store. Whole Foods Market is a proud sponsor of Heritage Radio Network and the Department of Transportation's Summer Streets, a three-day series of events dedicated to healthy, active living on the car-free streets of New York City. Join us at the Whole Foods Market City Picnic Area on 24th Street and Park Avenue the first three Saturdays in August. Find more information at the DOT's website, keyword Summer Streets. You're listening to Cutting the Curd. Hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd. Hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd. Hosted by Ann Saxelby. Broadcast live to the Cosmos on the Heritage Radio Network. Welcome to another episode of Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Ann Saxelby. Cutting the Curd is produced by Sophie Schlesinger. Um, and our show topic today is choosing cheesemaking or so you want to be a cheesemaker. Um, we've done iterations of this in the past, but uh, I think it's a good topic to revisit um, where we talk to cheesemakers, talk about how they got into what they do, and uh, just talk about, yeah, how, what, what does it take? Um, so today we are really happy to be talking with Adam Spanis. Um, Adam, are you with us? Yes, I'm here. <laughs> Fantastic. And um, so, Adam, you're with uh, Locust Grove right now, correct? Yes, that's correct. I, I was going to say Adam Spanis of Locust Grove, and then I had like a moment of like indecision, and I was like, I don't want to say the wrong thing. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, that's right. Okay, good. And Locust Grove, uh, can you tell uh, our listeners where you're located? We are in uh, East Tennessee, um, in Knoxville. Um, we have uh, we're a sheep dairy. We got about 120 primarily East Frisians that we're milking, and we're actually dry right now at this part of the year, which is pretty good because it's so hot down here right now. But January to July is when our milking time is. Wow. So that's that's almost, um, I feel like that's an opposite schedule of most uh, sheep cheese um, 
makers. I feel like most people sort of milk and make cheese all through the summer and then finish up in about September, October. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we try to lamb in the cold depths of winter, well, I guess as the cold as it gets here down in Tennessee, primarily because it gives the, the lambs that are then born an advantage in, over the parasites and everything else, and so they get to be pretty strong and healthy by the time that come March when they're out on pasture, that they're able to, cause par- to survive and thrive because parasites are a fair, fairly um, large problem here because of the heat and how quickly everything grows. Oh, I believe it. I believe it. And so um, how do you guys deal with the cold um, when the, because when the lambs are born, I mean, they're so small. Do you guys, do you guys have sort of a special system in the barn that you use? Yeah, we will use basically those heat lamps that keep restaurant food warm before it gets <laughs> out of your table. And so we have a bunch of those heat lamps. They're in the barn, so they are protected on three sides from the elements, and so they're not getting blasted by any direct wind or anything like that. And they're in there with their mothers, and there's a bunch of them, so you get 30, 40, 50 sheep in a fairly small and close space, and it gets pretty warm pretty quickly. I believe it. I believe it. I, I just love that. I feel like cheese making is a lot about innovation, and that's uh, that's just one example of, you know, absolutely thousands. That's very cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah so, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. I was going to say, yes, on that innovation thing, a lot of the lambing jugs that we use to keep them separate are just, it, you can buy really very nice um, metal steel ones that are plated and they don't rust, but those get pretty expensive pretty quickly when you have a lot of lambs. So we'll use um, uh, pallets that get broken down and changed in different iterations and all sorts of other things like that to kind of just, like you're saying, get creative and make it work best for your, for your situation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, so I know everyone is probably dying to know at this point. So here you are, you know, talking like a veteran sheep farmer. But just a couple years ago, you were not. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what your background is and how you decided to uh, become a cheesemaker? Sure. My my degree that I actually received is in music performance, which is not at all related to what I was doing even before I became a cheesemaker. And which had, did absolutely nothing to prepare me for um, a career as a cheesemaker as well. But after <laughs> music performance, come on, you could get musical with the with the animals. I, I'd like to think that the curd reacts different ways to different music, but I don't know. Maybe that's just something that's in my head. <laughs> uh, um, so I was I got that degree, and then I had to pay the bills, and so I started working in kitchens, and I worked in different restaurants, pretty much everything from a dishwasher to a sous chef and a some fairly fancy New York Manhattan restaurants and I got a little bit burned out there doing 70 hours a week working six days a week in a hot cramped little room with the same bunch of people day in and day out not being able to see my friends so I actually well I was doing the cheese plate for one of the restaurants and I was buying a lot of cheese from uh, your shop and <laughs> I asked you about uh, any places that you know where they'd let people come up in um, cheese making it just what's going on and you referred me up to a uh, Cato Corner Farm Mark Gilman and I went up there and was just completely enthralled and so I did a little self-styled internship with him where he paid me in cheese for a while which meant I had to get a whole other set of jobs because my landlord would not accept a couple hundred pounds of cheese in lieu for rent especially <laughs> in Brooklyn <laughs> and so if, if you lived in an Italian neighborhood I don't know that might be a <laughs> might be a possibility um, yeah, well, he, I don't know. 
we, we just I didn't want to breach that topic. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't blame you. Yeah, landlords usually aren't uh, friendly towards uh, suggestions like that. <laughs> Um, but so anyways, I interrupted. So you were, um, you were working for Mark in, uh, in exchange for cheese. Right. And then let's see, I was private chefing on the side, working at the Bedford cheese shop, um, working with Mark at the farmer's market. And my wife is originally from Knoxville. And so she needed to move, um, back to the area down here to be closer to her family. And so I ended up working at Blackberry farm being the cheese maker there for the past two years. And how did that happen? I mean, it seems like a very like big leap to go from apprenticing at a farm and working at a cheese shop in in uh, Brooklyn um, to having a job as a full fledged cheesemaker. It was a very very big leap on everyone's part. I when I initially accepted the position, I was going to be someone's apprentice, working with somebody who had been experienced and been doing it longer. But in the interim, between accepting the job and then moving down here. He got accepted. He something happened, and he had to move away. And he's actually up in outside of Philadelphia to now making cheese. And so they kind of just gave me the position. And I was fortunate enough to be able to work with Peter Dixon for a couple of days, who helped really explain the and make get me on the road to understanding the difference between sheep's milk and cow's milk. Because while you might think that they're the same thing, they react totally differently. It's like a completely other world that you're working with. Can you tell can you tell our listeners a little bit about how that process was different for you as a yeah, as yes, a cheese maker? Absolutely. Um, you get your yield on sheep's milk cheese is it's pretty much twice what it typically is for a, a cow's milk cheese. So like after you um, you set the curd and then you begin to cut it, there's a lot more curd floating around in the way with a sheep's milk cheese than there is at a, a cow's milk. For example, we when I was at Blackberry I we were playing around with a uh, cow's milk cheese, and so we got some nice Jersey, really golden, beautiful color, and and I set it, and everything seemed was pretty much the same at that point. And then I cut the curd, and I was stirring, and I was kind of wondering where everything was in the vat because there was so much left of it. And then also, when you finally get into the mold, get it into the mold, the way it drains the way is at a much significant. It's it drains much more slowly from sheep's milk than it does cow's milk, so that the way you have to fill them is different if you want to get the same size cheeses in uh, the same mold. Ah, interesting. And all, and all that's related to the, the chemical composition. Like sheep's milk has more protein, more butterfat, more minerals, and it has the milk proteins that it has are different than what you find in cow's milk. I love sheep's milk. It's so good. It tastes, it tastes really, really nice. I'd never had, drank it before straight, and now on a fairly regular basis I'll try some of it, and it's, it's really nice. It's just like... It's like a I, milkshake. <laughs> yeah, it has a very rich, sweet, very cre- creamy, I guess, texture. It's like, but it doesn't cream at all. So it's, I don't, it'd be perfect to just put a little bit, make some cafe lays every morning with. I think. That you know, it's so funny. There was a restaurant that I used to work with in the city that was making sheep milk lattes and cappuccinos for a little while (laughs) i don't know if they could get it to foam actually cappuccino might be a stretch but definitely the lattes and then um the cheesemaker who i was buying the milk from rightfully decided that she'd rather make cheese out of it than sell milk because it's so valuable right because it's in such limited supply that it just 
that's why you never see it. Well, I I think that's why you never see it bottled for sale anywhere. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Um, well, so so Peter Dixon seems like he was a great resource, and I know he's been a resource to many cheesemakers um, throughout the years. Um, mm-hmm. Were there any other programs, schools, workshops that you found that helped you kind of on your path to becoming a more knowledgeable cheesemaker? Um, I haven't had the opportunity to take any classes or anything like that. I'd really like to get up to VIAC at some point and take the Vermont Institute for Artisan Cheese at some point and take some classes. I just... Learn, w- watching the way that Mark made a cheese and when he varied something and seeing the very diligent notes that he would take, I modeled my make sheets after his in the way that you change things because like, when you change, you only, I only change things once at a time, so I have a fairly good idea what the end result would be as compared to doing it normally. But I also um, read, a f- got my hands on as many different fairly technical dry cheese making books and read them, read them, made some cheese, made some batches, went back, looked at different passages and things that I had questions about, and slowly the, it began to make a little bit more sense to me. And how about those books? Do you have any in particular that really stand out as having been really helpful? I'd love to, I don't know, have a little, you know, um, audio bibliography here if you've got some. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, what is it? Glengarry, the book that Margaret Morris puts out, the, uh, what is it called? The, um... I can see uh, Cheesemaker's Manual, that's what it's called. Okay. That's a very good one. It explains fairly in detail. It's geared towards the uh, hobbyist cheesemaker for something you could do on your, in your own kitchen, but it has a lot of technical information in there specifically about cultures and ripening and the different environments that some different ripening cultures need that you can use it for um, uh, a more commercial one um paul kinstead's book that's a great book i I think that what is that american farmstead cheese yes that's what it's called yeah that is an absolutely fantastic book that i've i think i've highlighted in dog-eared pages just like i would a regular textbook that i would have had and then the publications that peter dixon puts out i found those to be very very helpful as well just coming from his years of hands-on experience doing it and i have the Fermented Dairy Foods, the Kazakowski book, that's a little bit more dry, and it's geared towards more large industrial scale, as is um, cheesemaking practice. But both of those get very technical into some very specific things. If you're having difficulties trying to work something out, if you're wondering about a specific recipe, they are very detailed about, oh, I think there's like 150 recipes in each one of those books. Wow. Wow, that's a well. That's a great list. I feel like I'm going to make sure we we get all of those tagged and uh, and on the uh, website, so aspiring cheesemakers can follow your lead and uh, <laughs> and learn from these books too. Because there are there are some great resources out there, but I feel yeah. like they can be really difficult to find. Mm-hmm. There's also one more. Um, it's not specifically about cheesemaking. It's about setting up your creamery and thinking about floor plans and just all the business aspects of it. And that's the Farmstead Creamery Advisor, which is. I think it was just published last year, and I've, that's a really good resource as well, just thinking about the, the whole enterprise that you're trying to do, not just the specifics of what's going on in the cheese-making room and the ripening room. Because, well, if you can make a great cheese, if you can't sell it, or if you have other issues outside of that, no one's going to know about it, and you're going to have trouble 
uh, surviving as a business. Absolutely. Well, and so much about of your cheese making, it really is about your environment. Um, mm-hmm. Just Absolutely. in yeah, and how it's laid out. And, you know, what the temperature is like in there in your your ripening rooms. And, you know, you just have to uh, that's a really good um, point. You have to make a kind of holistic approach to your cheese making. Yeah, you can't don't try to force. I wouldn't as a piece of of advice, I wouldn't try to force if you really want to make one type of cheese and you make a bunch of batches and it's just not turning out in your environment for whatever reason. It's it's not worth it. You should just. Figure out what works best in your environment that you like, and then work with that. And another, as another aside, like if you were to take a recipe for someone, and they're turning out a really nice, beautiful cheese, then you take it back to your part of the country, it's going to turn out pretty differently because you're a different person making it with different milk in a different environment, and it's different equipment, be, different flora exactly. and fauna. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, there's so yep. many, so many variants. It's really, it's really fascinating. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a really interesting kind of counterintuitive, bizarre thing that it is that I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I think it's time to take a quick break. But when we come back, um, I, I want to know more. I'm a I'm a nosy person, so we'll talk more with Adam Spanis from Locust Grove Farm. Stay with us. service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Every Tuesday at noon, Dave Arnold, the author of CookingIssues.com, will discuss new and innovative techniques, equipment, and ingredients. Call in with your own questions to see if Dave and the crew can solve your cooking issues. Again, that's Tuesdays at noon on the Heritage Radio Network. And we are back on Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Ann Saxelby. If you have a question for Cutting the Curd, please send us an email to info at heritageradionetwork.com, and we will do our best to answer your questions. Um, can ask questions about how do you become a cheesemaker, ideas for future shows. Um, what do you want to hear about? We want to hear from you. Um, Today, we are talking about uh, cheese making as a career, and we're talking with Adam Spanis of Black, or I'm sorry, formerly of Blackberry Farm, now of Locust Grove Farm in Tennessee. So, Adam, I had a question um, because I feel like your, kind of, your job is sort of unique. Um, you're a cheesemaker without actually owning your own farm. Um, can you talk a little bit about the pros and cons of that and uh, just what that experience has been like? Um. Well, BlackBerry was really kind of advantageous that I, the business, I mean, their business was not going to ultimately survive or fail based on how good my cheeses were and how well they served. They do a fantastic job with their hotel and the restaurants there. This is kind of a value-added thing that they were bringing to the farm. So it gave me the freedom to experiment a little bit. And I might have taken, just tried some different variations on a recipe to see how things work. So that was another part of the the self-styled education that I was talking about before. I was just in the note-taking to see how 
the, these little minute variations that you do at one point, how, what ends up happening six, seven, four months, however long later. And then, but, so it's not owning the whole farm. It's, it's an interesting situation in that you, you have a, as being the cheesemaker in the current situation, what I don't have, that's what I have a lot of say over, and that's my area of expertise and what I'm working on and trying to get the product out there. But in terms of the breeding and all that, that left up to someone else. So, I mean, it's a lot of information for someone to try to handle, to deal with, and get all the minutia together with. So if you can, even in, I think, in a lot of successful businesses, they have a partner, be it a family member or husband, wife, someone else, where they work with, in tandem with that person towards the one goal of making a really high-quality farmstead cheese. Yeah, well, I, I totally agree. It, to do it, to try and do it all yourself and be and be farmstead, and um, it's just it's next to. I think it probably is impossible, actually, <laughs> to be yeah. able to. I know. I, I feel like I know a couple people who do it, and it's just. I'm like, wow, my my eyes cross just trying to think about what their <laughs> what their day to day schedule is like. Yeah. Um, but it's. I feel like it's a really interesting model because I feel like as more people become interested in cheese making. Um, it would be really great to be able to pursue a path as a cheesemaker and not have to be so caught up in everything that it entails to actually mm-hmm. start a farm because it's such an expensive yeah. um, process. Yeah, and that's what I was, I think that's a really great point that you touch on there. Just the, to get the, procure the land, the animals, and have a milking parlor is a pretty phenomenal expense. And then you add on top of that, getting the cheesemaking equipment, a and a ripening room and everything and you're it's a large outlay of money that not a whole lot of people have or are able to secure a line of credit for especially the way things are going today but Mm -hmm. it i mean there are a lot of dairy farmers out there who sell their milk to i mean if you i think the best way to do would be to pair with a dairy farmer an established dairy farmer who you know and trust and have high quality milk and set up a separate maybe set up like a separate shop that's not on the farm so you have a storefront presence as well and people can come in and see what it is that you're doing and kind of look behind the curtain or just lift the veil about this mysterious thing that is cheese. It's not just shrink-wrapped orange blocks in the grocery store. It's a very interesting, living, intricate thing that, that we create. It's really funny. That reminds me of a story. Um, Veronica Pedraza, who used to work at my store and had previously worked at Sweetgrass Dairy in Georgia, was telling Mm -hmm. a story about how they had farm days once. And um, so they invited, you know, the public and they had a couple hundred people show up. And um, a lot of the people that came didn't have that much experience with cheese or cheese making or farming in general. And so somebody asked Veronica, well, where do you make, you know, where does the cheese come from? And she's like, oh, we make it in that building right over there. And the person was like, get out of town. That's crazy. No, tell me where it really comes from. <laughs> so I feel like, yeah, there is kind of this mystery if you haven't, mm-hmm. if you haven't done it. <laughs> right. Um, but uh, so, yeah, I think that's, that's a great, that's a great model. Is that how, is that your setup at, uh, at Locust no. Grove? No, it's, we're all farmstead on the cheese making room is right next to the bulk tank room, which is right next to the uh, milking parlor. It's all on one piece of property where we have. The sheep rot on pasture um, about mm, eight, nine months out of the year. we pretty much April, March to October-ish, November, sometime like that. And so it's all done right there. And we do have a little, I guess, storefront. It's 
where people can walk in and if they want to visit to visit the farm and see what's going on and purchase cheese at the same time but it's not like a nice storefront where everything is perfectly manicured and clean it's it's a farm. It's a farm. Yeah, I, I hear you. I say that about my house, but I don't have the luxury <laughs> of saying it's a farm. <laughs> Starting the urban farming trend in New York. <laughs> yeah, I'm farming like dust bunnies. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so are you involved um, a lot as well with the marketing and sales of the cheese um, as, as the cheesemaker, or is that kind of left to somebody else as well? Um, no, that's part of my responsibility as well. It's a little bit harrowing at times trying to stir a 75-gallon vat of warm milk and cradle a cell phone between your other arm and your ear. I'm terrified I'm going to drop it in at some point and have to explain it to the cell phone store people why this phone doesn't work anymore. <laughs> you got to get a headset. Yes. <laughs> Headsets are the, are the greatest thing ever. I think I've been, I've been resisting, but I think it would be a really good idea and kind of take one, one less thing I have to worry about while making cheese. Exactly. Exactly. So that's a fa- I mean, that's a huge responsibility as well, mm-hmm. then, making the cheese and then um, and then marketing and selling it. That's a what, what are your yeah. primary what are your primary markets right now? Um, Knoxville is a very good one. Um, we sell over in Asheville. We do a little bit of mostly the southeast Atlanta, Char- Charleston, Asheville, Knoxville, Nashville. Um, we do ship a little bit outside of the southeast, but it's I don't particularly like to do it right at this point of the year just because it is so hot yeah. and cheese being so perishable you have to stick almost as many um of those frozen gel packs in there as you do cheese and which hikes the shipping cost up pretty significantly and not a whole lot of places can absorb that yeah yeah no i i hear that shipping cheese is we just got to get a truck we got to get go. like a national cheese truck that just makes the rounds and uh <laughs> picks up at all the farms that would be awesome that would be totally awesome um, well, so what about, uh, I feel like, you know, so you've been a cheesemaker now for how many years? Um, well, two and a half down here. And then I worked with Mark for about nine or 10 months. Okay. Okay. So in those, in that time, like what, um, I don't know, what are your favorite cheeses to make and what are things that you hope to be able to make in the future? Um, I really like, uh, there's a soft, fresh kind of like a, a chev, in quotes, because it's made from goat's milk. I'm sorry, sheep's milk. No, you're right. <laughs> yeah, chev's made from goat's milk. That's perfect. Yeah, chev's <laughs> made from goat's milk, but we make it from sheep's milk, so it's richer, creamier, a little bit tangier. It doesn't have the uh, the goatiness in there. That's the, that's the specific enzyme in goat's milk that sheep don't have. And it's it's really nice. It's really versatile. I really enjoy We My wife and I use it a lot at home on all sorts of different things. And a bunch of restaurants here in town have picked it up and are doing all it's really interesting to walk into a restaurant with the delivery of cheese and just talking with the chefs about what they're doing with your product, and they come up with some of these things that you never otherwise, I never would have even considered or thought of doing. So that's pretty cool. That is very cool. That is very cool. Um, and then, so so that's one style, and what are what are some other styles that, uh, um, that you focus on? I, I also make a kind of a French Pyrenees-style uh, tome, like you'd find in the Basque country between Spain and um, France and that part of the country, um, that part of the world, I'm sorry, and where you wash the, the rind for the first six to, eight mo- six to eight weeks, and then after that you brush it just ever so lightly to keep the mold in check, and it allows it to ripen a little bit longer than if you were, I think if you're wiping it every day, if 
but that's correct. Yeah. And I really enjoy that type of cheese. It's it's based off like an also arati, and that was one of my favorite cheeses to eat. And I so love I, I love I that really, cheese I too. To something like that. Yeah, it's it's just fantastic. Um, well, that's that's very cool. And so, what do you see for yourself? You know, down the line, do you think um, uh, would you want to have your own farm eventually, or do you think that um, do you prefer you know your cheese making career as it is? Um. I don't know if I, I think if I was to have a f- farm type thing, it wouldn't be, because the, there's a lot of places I'd like to still visit in the world, and having a farm kind of ties you down to it more than I'd like to be, at least right now, maybe in the long-term future. But in the current um, setup, I'm pretty happy with the way that it is, because during this time of the year, like I said, where we're dry, it gives me the freedom to travel to different cities in the region and meet with chefs, restaurateurs, um, people running cheese shops, and put a face with the cheese that they're buying so it's not just a voice or, or an email. That it, it helps strengthen the connection so you you know these people a little bit more, and it, I, I, I enjoy it. That, that's a really good point. I feel like, and, and that is something that I feel like a lot of cheesemakers don't get the luxury of, or to, to be able to do. Um, mm-hmm. You are so tied to your farm sometimes that um, it, maintaining those connections becomes hard and it can be a little isolating sometimes. So that's yeah. a really valuable sort of thing that, that you've pinpointed. Yeah, I, I've, like working with, working before I um, moved down here and I was trying to contact a bunch of cheesemakers just to, stop in and just broaden my knowledge and to see how other people did things. It was really difficult to get people on the phone or to answer an email just because they're so busy on the farm taking care of the animals, taking care of the cheese, What maybe the tractor breaks down, maybe some fencing needs to get repaired. There's just all these things that seem to pop up and take um, part of your time that you hadn't otherwise, that you had otherwise allotted for something else. Yeah, definitely. And I'm sure they don't uh, they don't have headsets for their cell phones either. They're, that's actually no. that's actually a great luxury of being a farmer. You're not tied to your uh, <laughs> you're not tied to your email or your or no. your cell phone in the way that your most cell people phone are. might not even work out in the back pasture. And well, that's that might not be a bad thing for some of us some days. Oh man, are you kidding? That's like that's like my dream. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, um, this has been really fascinating um, to talk with you and just see how you've traced your career path. Um, do you have any final words of inspiration or wisdom for um, people out there who are thinking about getting into cheesemaking? Um, I would just try to visit as many different farmers um, who are doing it just to see all the different ways that people are solving a similar set of problems because while everyone's trying to do the same thing, and but everyone's business is a little bit different. The way that their cheese room, their milking parlors, set up slightly differently, and maybe somebody will have a really brilliant idea that you could borrow from them and take to your own thing if you're so fortunate to be able to get it set up and going. I think that that is excellent, excellent advice. Um, well, thank you again for taking time out to be on the show, and uh, thank you for making delicious cheeses. Um, Thank you, Anne. Yeah, and uh, and we will be back next Monday with another episode of Cutting the Curd. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd. 
hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curtain, hosted by Ann Saxelby, broadcast live to the Cosmos on the Heritage Radio Network. This is Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer. The long-awaited documentary, The Vanishing of the Bees, will be screening in Astoria, Queens, at the Broadway branch of the Queens Public Library on Monday, September 19th. I know that seems like a long ways away, but it isn't. It will be broadcast from 6 to 8 p.m. More information about this fascinating look at bee life and colony collapse disorder can be found at their website at www.vanishingbees.com. I also wanted to add that the producers are all working on a 30-minute educational video for high school students, so any parent or teacher should check out the site to see what he or she can do to work with the team to bring this into a school curriculum. The film has a Facebook page as well that discusses current events that affect bees. This is Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer. Every spring at the end of kidding season, goat dairies across the country are faced with the question of what to do with their male bucklings. Because on a dairy farm, there's no role for a male. Often the most economical thing for these farmers to do is to cull the animals at birth or ship them off to the commodity market. Heritage Foods USA is embarking on a new project, No Goat Left Behind, looking to step in and fill this niche by creating a marketplace for these male bucklings. Visit us at www.heritagefoodsusa.com to learn more and to reserve your goat this coming October. 